Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. Hi, this is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Conversation of the Week. Today, I'll be chatting with Boston Celtics assistant coach Jay Larinaga, who not only enjoyed a long playing career in Europe, which includes five years as captain of the Irish national team, but is also a highly regarded coach, recently serving as an assistant coach for USA Basketball at this summer's national team minicamp. In this week's conversation, you'll learn about some of the habits and characteristics that help propel athletes to the top of their game, how intentionality and clear goals can help make high-pressure situations feel more like a challenge or an opportunity than a threat, and which pizza place you should be eating at if you're ever passing through Boston. Well, thank you for making the time out of, I don't know how the NBA season works, whether this is a crazy time or not, but um, anyhow, thank you for taking the time out to, to chat for a little bit. Calm, calm before the storm. Okay. We have, uh, it's kind of an unwritten NBA practice that after Labor Day, most of the players come back to town and then you'll have about two to three weeks of informal voluntary workouts. They'll start playing pickup on their own. Okay. Um, we're able to work with them, but no more than like a three on three setting. Okay. Um, so we have some players in town right now, some of the younger guys, some of our um, younger players that are invited to train the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, no, it's a good time to get back into the flow before everyone gets here. You know, it's interesting because that kind of makes me think of um, how teachers and students have this one hour a week generally where they're very much in contact and, and they're supervised and they can listen to how things are going and, and provide instruction. But, you know, the vast majority of the rest of the week, you know, every other hour of the week, they're kind of on their own. Um, so, you know, I saw in this interview, you wrote um, something, you said something about the importance of developing winning habits. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, you have players, I'm sure, who come back, who through the off season maybe have, have kind of leaned on these winning habits and maybe others who maybe haven't. But uh, could you expand a little bit on, on what some of these winning habits are that really help players um, be the best that they can be? I think we'll probably cover a bunch of different books throughout our discussion right now. I think we both like to read and like to learn and are constantly trying to get better. So, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from my dad. My dad coach has coached for a really long time, um, has had a lot of success, but he was, when he was a young coach struggling to kind of find his voice and find his culture and, and just, 
cementing himself in his career and, and being successful. Uh, his older brother, who was a successful business businessman, recommended to him that he needed to to really study more to to become better at his craft. And I think the first book he recommended was the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now Stephen Covey. So I don't think whether it's sports or music or business, or whatever, I think there are some habits that lead to success. And so we try and educate our players about that. I think I would separate it really into two categories. First of all, how to successfully prepare. And, and I think those are more general of, you know, getting a good night's sleep, of having a good diet having a, a daily consistent routine, getting to the gym at the same time every day. You don't necessarily do the same thing every day, but just having a consistency in your life, which most successful people have, you know, you just, you follow successful people there. There's a consistency to it. So that's the first part, I think, in just helping our young players that come into the league so early of understanding Hey, like what you do the night before affects how you're going to play the next day, whether that's a practice or a game. Having breakfast matters. Getting to practice an hour before practice and stretching and, and warming up is better than rolling in five minutes before practice, throwing your shoes on and, and sprinting out onto the court without eating. So we, we deal a lot with that because – Really, the, the, our league is filled with the most physically gifted athletes in the world. And those physical tools were, you know, a lot of those were just God-given. They are the elite of the elite. They've not had to get to practice an hour early ever before. They've not had to really spend a lot of time on their skill. They've just been bigger and faster and stronger and jumped higher their, their entire lives. So that, that's kind of in the preparation category, I would say. But then once practice does start, we believe there are certain playing or competitive habits that, that ring true as well. And it's, you know, it's as simple as making a multiple effort on defense of not giving up on a play of if there's a loose ball that you dive for, if you drive to the basket and two people come over and help that you pass to the open man making a quick decision when you get the ball, whether, whether it's to shoot it or pass it to drive it, there's, there's just, there's a, there's a right way to play, you know, and getting players to buy into that and develop that is, and making it a habit where they're doing it instinctively instead of having to really choose. I forget where I read it. It might be, it might've been in the power of habit, but they talk about basically where you eliminate the choice part of it. It's not, you're not making a choice to do the right or wrong thing. It's just, this is what we do. Both in terms of the, like the sleep diet routine part of it, but also the playing and the competition part of it. Yeah. It's just what we do. This is what successful people do. We want to be successful. The one thing that was in the power of habit that I really liked is they talked about keystone habits. They referenced, uh, I think Alcoa and they said that, they made their whole emphasis on safety and we just want to be the safest work environment. And just by, cause they, 
I don't know how calculated they were in this, but the end result was by putting so much focus on safety, their productivity, the success of the company, all those other things, their job satisfaction all like went through the roof. So I think there are little things that you can really focus on and get good at those, which have like a huge effect on your team or on your player. You mentioned something about, about buy-in and I think it depends. Like I'm thinking about some of my students in grad school and thinking some of my younger students and, you know, high school age where sleep diet and routine. I mean, there's a school routine, but I think sleep and diet exercises are some of the things that are quick to go out the window because you just feel like you need to practice more or you need to study more. Or you just need to do more skill-based stuff, but kind of failing to realize that all that work that you do is at a lower level because you're tired or you keep nodding off or, you know, your, your energy goes up and down throughout the day because you're not eating consistently and you're relying on coffee and so forth. So, you know, it makes sense intellectually. <laughs> right, coffee. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, but, but it's really hard, I think, sometimes to make that an actual behavior change. Um, I mean, do you run into that as well? I mean, is it difficult to convince? I mean, especially I think when you're younger, you just kind of get away with more. But like, how do you get that buy-in from people who might have been fine up until a certain point without a consistent routine or sleep schedule or diet and so forth? Getting guys to make like realistic changes in their life is difficult. Like if they're not in the habit of doing it, um, and I think that's as teachers or as, as coaches, that's what we try to do. I always fall back on like the Daniel Pink stuff of, of drive of, you know, autonomy, mastery and purpose of the three things that actually motivate people. And so you had in one of our emails, you had said, like, I. I, it seems like I like to make things enjoyable for guys or make it competitive, or whatever. That's really just based on his his book and wanting players to take ownership of their, their careers, right. wanting them to take ownership of their workouts, wanting it to be enjoyable. Like I, ideally, you don't need that. There are there are some basketball junkies. We've had a few. We had Isaiah Thomas was that way. Evan Turner was that way that they eat, sleep, breathe basketball 24 hours a day, getting them to go hard in a workout or be focused in a workout is never an issue. They're going home and watching games there. They like have this internal burning desire to be great, but that's a, that's a very select few. I think there's a lot a lot more guys who are kind of in, in between, you know, I think the way I've tried to approach that is just to educate them as much as possible, share as many different stories of, of successful people that I've known or I've read about or, I, or introduce them to. And again, just it's your choice. You have that auto autonomy, but I can give you the tools to to be the best version of yourself, to be the best player you can be if you want to. And if you do that, you know, you're, you're going to have a really 
if you're in the NBA already, like you're going to have a really successful and, and fruitful life. You know, it's interesting because, so you mentioned that there's some, you know, these basketball junkies. And I think in the music world, there's some equivalents. You know, I have some friends who, like, you can't imagine them not being musicians because they're, they, they geek out about every aspect of yeah. it and they just love it. And, and that's really cool to see. But then there are a lot of other exceptionally talented musicians who are very successful and do well. And I, you know, I see these at different levels too. You know, you can kind of see those, those pre-collegiate musicians who you can tell are going to be those kinds of adult musicians. And then you see some others who are really great players and, <clears throat> and talented as well, but also seem to have other interests and, and balancing things. And sometimes I feel like there can be some guilt around not being that like music junkie, if you will. I mean, in your experience, is it, is it okay to not be that way? I mean, can you still be really successful? Like, how's it different when you're not that basketball junkie and, and still want to be really excellent? I believe that hard work pays off. And the more time you put into something, if it's intelligent time, you know, like you have to, you have to work hard, but you have to work smart as well. You can't just kill yourself. At least in the NBA, like the, the players that I've seen be successful, you have the junkies that, and all of them have to start with a kind of a minimum level of athleticism and size and all the things that allowed them to compete at this level. But there are junkies. There are, there's another group of guys that I just call competitors. They, they don't love the drills. They don't love to practice, but they love to compete. And they have, a, they're really, really gifted physically. To me, those that those guys don't ever um, realize their full potential because they can't commit to the practice part of it. But they've they're elite athletes and and they're able to get by. And then you have like this whole other group that's really cool to watch. That they don't, I don't think they love the sport, but. They're responsible adults and they're professional and they are going to get their work in and they're not going to go overboard, but they are very consistent and reliable and they take care of their bodies. And over time, that group ends up having really long, successful careers because they just, the, like what we talked about earlier, they're, they buy into the preparation part of it. But yeah, I, I believe that to to realize your full potential, I, I think it does take a lot of time and effort, and you have to eliminate as many distractions as possible. That's interesting because it reminds me of <clears throat> something I read somewhere about a having a not to do list, right? Not, so not only a list of things you need to do, but things you need to actively avoid and make sure that you don't spend time on. I mean, is there like a a range of things that are consistent. Let's avoid these things during important parts of the seasons as far as preparation goes that, that may be good in the off season or maybe useful at other times, but in terms of really transitioning from practice and skill development to performance. It, I don't know if the one you're talking about, there was this one, there was a book I got recently. It was like 13 things that successful people don't do right. or something like yeah, that. It was, it's actually a, a psychologist from Maine or kind of around our area has written. And then she wrote one 13 things that, uh, high, 
I forget exactly, but but it was about parenting. Uh-huh. And it was like 13 things that parents don't do, successful parents don't do. During the course of the season, can can you kind of expound a little bit on it? Like, yeah, and partly I think I'm I'm trying to think of musicians, but also kind of pick your brain on this. I was talking to a diving coach, um, you know, Jeff Huber, you might know. He coached at Indiana for many years and a few Olympic teams. And, and he said that, you know, because they're competing with China and Russia, you know, countries that don't have this 20-hour-a-week NCAA rule about how much time you can have athletes in training, they had to be really smart about what they had their athletes do. Because something might be a great drill, might be a good thing to do from a learning perspective or a development perspective. But if it wasn't going to translate as directly to performance as something else that they could spend those 10 minutes or 15 minutes doing, they had to kind of pare it out or, or eliminate it in favor of things that are really going to help in terms of performance. Um, so I just wondered if there were, there were things like that that, you know, might be great to do in practice in the off season when you have more time. But, you know, when it comes to, okay, it's game time, we really have to perform at the highest level. We can't spend time on these kinds of drills. If there were things like that, perhaps, or kinds of practice approaches. The two things that come to mind when you say that is, first of all, like Brad, one of Brad's go-to lines going into every game is he wants our players to play with a clear mind and fresh legs. Hmm. So if you time the amount of time we spend on the practice court i would i would be willing to bet a lot of money that it were probably in the bottom 10 percent to 20 percent in the league in terms of actually on our feet on the court we try and be to try and be very efficient with the time we're on the court that we ask of the players and and they do a lot of stuff on their own before practice after practice but in terms of the whole group and then I think the other thing we do, and I've, I have a friend who's a successful businessman. He was one of the first people that said it to me, but we do it also in our practices. He said he gave up golf because he just wasn't accomplishing enough with it. He felt like, you know, you spend four or five hours on the golf course just to get a little bit of exercise and um, spend some time with some friends, but he said in terms of all the things he wanted to accomplish in a day, it just wasn't very time efficient. And so he said he was always looking for a two for or a three for or a four for like, how can I get as many good things out of one event? Can I do it with people I love? Can I work, you know, am I developing personally am i whatever you're trying to get out of it and we i think do something similarly we call like a multitask so when we're covering the opponent's offense instead of a lot of teams will just say okay this is their play called horns and we're going to walk over this play and this is how you guard it and then we'll say okay now this is a play that they call fist down and we're going to walk over this and that Instead, what we try to do is we'll take three plays and we'll say, all right, we're going to run horns. Then we're going to reverse the ball into what they call fist down. And then we're going to finish with a high pick and roll, something like that. And just being efficient with our time and being able to accomplish what maybe one team is takes them 
10 minutes to do. If we can get it done in five minutes, we feel like we're winning. So I think time is like the one commodity that, that is finite at some point, you know, <laughs> like, and so the more that we can use our time well and be as efficient and productive as possible, I think. I like that. You know, there's, I was certainly guilty of this growing up. And I think there are a lot of other musicians who are as well, where, you know, when you're a couple months out from a big competition or an audition, you like, you feel like you have plenty of time and you probably don't use your time as effectively. And then it starts to be like three weeks out. You can kind of see it on the calendar. It's two weeks out, one week out. I would tend to start practicing more and more and like harder, like as the day approached and, you know, it sounds like from, from Brad's approach and your approach, I, I like this idea of clear mind, fresh legs. I mean, you're trying to not over prepare, over practice, over prepare is maybe not the right word, but you're trying not to get too worn out and do too much so that you can have that energy in the game. And you, you said something earlier about burnout. Or maybe you didn't use the word burnout, but in my mind, it kind of triggered the idea of burnout. How do you, you know, balance the, incredible need to be prepared. I, I, I like that story you told about Kevin Garnett and just knowing every, every player's go-to move and that what, what that level of preparation really looks like and means. Is there a way of balancing that with also still not emotionally or physically burning out so that when the game comes, you really can be at your A game? I think like I, I've been very, very fortunate because I think Brad's self-discipline is about as good as it can be and talk about his his routine for preparing is so consistent and so balanced and i was very similar to you where like if something's far off i'm much more relaxed and as it gets closer i'm going to work harder and i'm going to procrastinate and I'm, I'm cramming the night before every test and i think that's human nature but I think if you, you recognize that, that we all struggle with that and if you just have constant reminders of, hey, I have to be organized with this, I always fall back on you. You have to still be true to yourself. Every person is a little different. You know, the way that I'm going to be successful is not the same how you're going to be successful or how Brad's going to be successful. But... And this, I'll actually reference another book I just read that I really love. It's called How Will You Measure Your Life? Hmm. Really good. And it just talks about balancing career, balancing family. And it says, like, regardless of, of what you claim your priorities are, your actions of where you put your time, money, and energy is where your priorities are. So if you say your family is the most important, but you you're doing 70 hour work weeks and not getting to see your kids. And it's not your, that you're not really being a man of integrity or a person of integrity. You're not, your actions are not backing up what you're saying. Um, so that, that's a really good one. And it's a, it's a real easy read that you might like. Yeah, no, that sounds interesting. This is kind of a, a transition from what we've been talking about, but you know, there is one thing that, I feel like might be similar that I'm curious to, to get your take on. I think every musician has certain 
passages or certain shifts or certain notes that that kind of freak them out a little bit. They kind of lie awake worrying about. And and what's frustrating about it is a lot of times you can you can get it fine in the practice room when there's nothing at stake. But you know when you get that one opportunity and it really matters, that's the time that it tends to not be so consistent. You worry about it, and and you know, it's hard to practice that because. When you're in the practice room, it's fine, right? So the only time you can really practice that or experience that is when there are people watching or when it's in a performance. And, you know, I've heard that there are a lot of players who seem to be able to hit everything in practice, but then not everybody has that same ability to hit it in, in a game. Like, are there things that you guys do in practice to help make that that transition from what it feels like in practice to game less or to kind of minimize that gap? I think the thing I, I was fortunate. I played 12 years overseas, um, and I was never. I would never viewed myself as like a great clutch player. I, I wouldn't say I, I, I was made some big shots in my career, missed some, but it was never. There's certain you know you've been around people and you've probably been around musicians where you just say like they're clutch. They're they are a confident. They have a swagger to them that you just feel like, oh, they want the ball at the end of the game. They're going to make the shot. I've seen them make the shot. I've seen them make the putt. I was much more analytical and probably overanalyzed every situation. And I struggled with that in my first few years overseas. And I think what helped me the most is I kind of changed my whole perspective on those situations where as opposed to ending up in those situations and, and feeling apprehensive or nervous in those situations, I went into every game and I had a list of goals for every game. And the last goal that I, I, mean, I would either write them down or read them every game, the last goal was make, make big shots and plays to win the game. So when those moments came, I wasn't viewing it anymore as oh man, I'm worried about this. I hope I don't mess up. It from, from a going from basically a risk of failure to an opportunity to succeed, mm. I guess. And it, it really helped me a lot. Like I, I, I just approached the situation totally differently and, and really looked at it, at it as more of an opportunity than, than a risk. And so I, I try to communicate that with our players there's some, but, but for me, it was a constant challenge. Like some people just naturally feel a certain way and other people have to work harder at it. Well, it's cool. Cause it seems like your, your goal approach, I'm just guessing what might've happened inside your head as you were playing, but is it almost like it, it switched you from focusing on the consequences of the game to just knowing, okay, these are the goals that I have for myself as a player, as a teammate and if I take these opportunities, whether or not I hit the shot or miss the shot, at least I'm moving in the direction of my goals. I mean, is that it kind of made it about you developing as opposed to whatever the consequences yeah, might have I, been? I just think I was, you know, I, it's a, a popular term right now, I think, but I was more intentional in how I played. I, I didn't just go out and play. I was very focused on I want to... Um, I want to help us win the game. I want to do specific things. I want to make a game-winning three. Mm. 
So I was searching that out more than it being a surprise. Because if you're surprised, then you're going to always default back to what your natural instinct is. And so I just wanted to be much more, take more, I guess, control of what I was doing. Actually, do you mind? Do you, I don't know if you remember, but do you mind me asking how specific some of these goals might have been? Might have been maybe some examples. Um, like were they general goals or were they, were they pretty specific? They're super specific. It was, I want to take a I want to take a ch- one charge every game. I want to. I wrote them going into what ended up being my best season overseas, and. They were, I want to average this many points. I want to shoot this field goal percentage. I want, yeah, and some of them were statistics like that. Other of them were situations where if a big guy switches on to me, I want to beat him instead of just being passive. Like I was, I was generally a pretty passive team oriented unselfish player and you know to be the best you can possibly be there has to be a level like i said of self-ownership of 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 selfishness for lack of a better term like it has to matter to you like it can't be more important than the team goals but at least for me that that having those goals and, and writing them down um, really helped me be more focused and, uh, and especially under like stressful situations of where there was a lot of emotion or the end of games, like it helped me refocus on just, Hey, this isn't, this is an opportunity to, to accomplish a goal. Mm-hmm. Nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Don't think about this is an opportunity to lose this is an opportunity to fail (laughs) i wonder it i mean when you wrote these goals down especially these situational goals are the ones that i find really intriguing did you spend time not just identifying them but almost even like visualizing them and kind of seeing it in advance of the game so that when it happened it was like recognizable instantly for sure i had um so my dad's probably besides his brothers had the biggest influence on his coaching careers guy named Dr. Bob Rotella. Yeah. So he's a sports psychologist, has worked mostly in professional golf, but also in basketball, every, all types of sports. His books are really, really good. And he talks about visualization. He was actually really cool. He came to visit my family when I was in college, and it was during the World Series. And he, we were at dinner, and he had to excuse himself from dinner. And he was gone for like an hour and a half. He came back down and he's like, I'm sorry. I, I was just talking with Greg Maddox for the Braves. He said, I was, we were going through his entire, you know, the entire lineup for the other team, how he was going to face each bat. And we, he basically visualized like, I don't know, three innings, five innings, whatever it was. But, um, that, that was pretty cool. I know that you have two kids and, you know, I've read a little bit online where um, it seemed like you were involved in, in some of the coaching or I'm sure naturally just as a dad and, and being around basketball your whole life and their grandfather and so forth, there's got to be some 
interaction with them on a, on a basketball level. Like, how do you do that with your kids? How do you balance trying to share with not trying to say too much at the same time? Well, I think, first of all, the children and people in general have so much more potential than, than any of us ever realize. I think I was, so my kids were both born overseas. My daughter went up till first grade um, at a school in Italy. And I can still remember when she was in kindergarten, she went to a little Catholic school with nuns and they, all they focused on was, you know, reading and writing and arithmetic, right? It was just the old school learning and it was a lot of repetition and memorization. And I have these notebooks from her kindergarten class and she had the most beautiful cursive handwriting and was doing math equations that she didn't get to in the States until I want to say like second or third grade. And like that really, and we moved back to the United States and she lost, she basically was not demanded all that she had been demanded of in Italy and lost all of that. Um, so that was, it was pretty eye opening to me. Like, Kids can do so much more if if we demand it of them, and I don't think that's a bad thing. If it's if it's done with love and, and understanding, and like I always say, like what's the what's the alternative? If if you're not doing something productive, or you're not doing something to develop a skill. Are you are you just watching TV? Are you playing video games? Like I. I, I I don't think it's wrong to, to be demanding of our kids, with, but obviously you want to have a balance. I did like in the, the book I was telling you, the How You Measure Your Life, He uh, the author talks about, um, I forget exactly how he put it, but it's basically like what what service is something providing? Like what do you need from this activity or what do you need from this person or whatever? And he said like school what, what do children need from school? And he said, they basically need two things. They need to experience success and they need to make friends. And, and so I think that's, that's affected me a little bit of in whatever we're doing. I, I want them to experience success. I don't want to make something so difficult that it becomes frustrating and unenjoyable. Um, and we'll do that even with so when we're doing basketball stuff, I'll we'll stay really close and I'll just say to my side, I don't everybody wants to run out to the three point line and, and throw up shots. But I said, I just want you to see the ball go in. Mm-hmm. I want you to start to understand how you can make the ball go in the basket. That's cool. Is is that sort of how you and your dad grew up doing things? I'm curious how he was able to, you know, demand excellence but also do it in a loving considerate sort of way it's like you talked about it like it's a challenge right playing for your parent or coaching a child there's a lot of emotion tied up in that there's a lot of from a child's perspective when i'm being criticized or i'm being coached are they coaching me as a player or me as a person or is this when i'm being corrected you know 
that's my father or is that my coach there's a i mean there's a lot that goes into that that's that makes playing for anybody else so much easier <laughs> once you've been through that right. i i think i was trying to think of like when you emailed me i was trying to think of what i thought was really impactful with my dad and i and i, I think the one thing was we and i would say that 90% of the workouts that my dad put me through when I was a little kid up and through college that ended with us fighting and me crying. It was at some point it got to that. But the next day he was always willing to go work out with me again. And so he, he never held a grudge. I never held a grudge. We kind of understood that, hey, we both want to do well. I made sure to always let him know how much I appreciated him doing the things he was doing with me, even if at times we, we argued and, and fought a lot. Um, but he always came back the next day. Well, it's good to hear that because, you know, I think I had a lot clearer ideas before I had kids myself. And then once I had kids, everything that I thought I knew kind of went out the window. So. It's, it's, and there's no, like, every kid is different. My two, I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, and their personalities couldn't be more different. So there's not, I don't think there's just one answer for everybody. It's finding out what that individual child enjoys, making it enjoyable, and making them want to come back the next day. And part of that, I think, is just being successful. And maybe that's a good place to, to wrap up. But I, I was curious. You mentioned a few books. I mean, is there anything that you didn't mention that you would recommend you know, everyone ought to read? Um, the one my my favorite, one of my favorites, I have, much of, <laughs> I have a bunch of favorites, but Peak Performance Under Pressure, I think is really, really good. It was written by, the author's name is escaping me right now, but he was one of the first instructors at at Top Gun at flight school. And it goes just very detailed into what fighter pilots, Navy flying aces, specifically Navy flying aces, do to prepare that allows them to be so successful. I don't know how into food you are, but but I always like having something food-related to look forward to wherever I happen to go. So even though it's not related to performance, um, it actually might Beauty's, be actively, yes, un, you know, actively bad for performance perhaps. But, you know, as someone who's been in Boston for a while, you know, if, if I or someone else was to be in Boston, what do we totally have to eat when we're there? For me, I would have to say Pizzeria Regina is, the, I think, the oldest pizza place in Boston. There's one by Boston Garden, but the one I actually prefer is out by Fenway Park. And pizza's unbelievable, not healthy for you at all. But it's also the the restaurant is attached to a train railroad. So every hour, hour and a half, a train just goes flying by and scares the heck out of anyone that's sitting in the windows by a uh, by the train so that I love um, for more of the foodie type people that maybe is a little bit more high quality there's a place called Tip Tap Room which is again down the street from Boston Garden 
the place my wife and I and, and kids will go a lot after games. It's really good. They have excellent, excellent food. Really good turkey tips. Okay. So that's a big so pizza and turkey tips then. Yeah, so, tips is tips is a big Boston thing. Uh, steak okay. tips, turkey tips. Huh. So. I don't think I've ever had anything other than steak tips. Didn't know it existed. So. Yeah, no, oh, they do. I think tofu, maybe tofu, really? maybe. Yeah, there's a wide variety of tips when you come to Boston. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, well, thank you so much, Jay. Um, hope it's a good season for you guys and. Thanks again for taking the time out to, to chat for a little bit. 